Reading, short and deep. Hi, this is Jesse. And Eric. And today we're reading short and deep Friend Island by Francis Stevens. Eric, why did you want to discuss Friend Island? I got to tell you, Jesse, I had never heard of Francis Stevens before you brought this story to my attention. And I read it not hoping particularly that it would be great since it seemed to have mainly historical interest. One doesn't encounter this author in most of the histories of science fiction. Um, But when I read it, I discovered it was not just a really neat example of genre fiction and not just, in fact, genre fiction by the first important female science fiction writer, um, at least in America, but in fact, a story really worth unpacking. So I was hoping we could talk about it a little bit. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, I had read this story a couple of times uh, prior. One was for a podcast called Protecting Project Pulp, which was a, a pulp podcast. And this was indeed pu- published in a pulp magazine in 1918. And um, I appreciated it, but I didn't. I didn't quite appreciate how much it's actually just a, it's a joke. This whole thing's a joke, kind of, I think. But I think there's a lot, as you say, to unpack inside of it. And uh, the humor isn't, com- it isn't a complete joke. Um, so I, I also, it's, it's hard to classify. Is this a science fiction story, a fantasy story, <laughs> a tall tale? I think it might be a tall tale in a science fiction world. It's kind of hard to say. You know, I think that that first overall reaction, that, hey, wait a minute, this thing is a joke. Uh, maybe that would be clear to people if you just sort of gave a, a quick outline of how the story structured, what the main plot is. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, it's it's got a framing story where a male uh, unnamed character shows up at a uh, seaside, instead of bar, it's a tea house. And there uh, he spots a ancient Marinus, which I think is a great line to describe her, <laughs> uh, who has uh, obviously many to- stories to tell. He, he uh, approaches her, buys a big pot of tea and some macaroons, and she proceeds to tell a story. Um, That story concludes with a very big bill for macaroons (laughs) uh, and tea. Uh, And the narrator, the narrator is very pleased, uh, but also um, uh, astounded (laughs) uh, by the story. And I think rightly so. But what's missing from this description is that it's set somewhere in the distant future um, even though the story's set in the past, it is still our future of some kind because it's, uh, as one describer described it, it's a matriarchal society, but I think that that's not exactly right. I think it's a female-dominated society because women are the stronger sex, not physically, just overall. Yeah. You know, I... 
I was a little one. I'm a little wondering about sources that talk about this story. Uh, the Wikipedia article mm-hmm. says that it's set in the 22nd century, and when I not sure where that would come from. I have no idea. I've read the story a number of times now, and I I don't see any reference to the 22nd century at all. But I do see an awful lot of references to the late 19th and early 20th century that I imagine many current day readers wouldn't catch. Uh, For example, in order for us to know that the ancient Marinus, who's I guess gets called a sailoress or a sea woman uh, Mm -hmm. many times in the story. In order for us to know that she lives in a world where things have changed uh, from the way they were before, uh, meaning at the time of publication, 1918, she, she tells us that she was looking for her lost gold hairpin mm-hmm. and that because gold was still valuable when she was a girl, she was attached to this gold hairpin, which of course means that gold isn't particularly valuable now, that is, at the time that the ancient Marinus is telling the story to the man who has come into the tea house to try to get stories from people, and he's he's fixed on her and bribed her with tea and macaroons. Now, in 1888, which is uh, five years after the author was born, right? Uh, she was born in 1883. Francis Stevens is a, is a pseudonym. Um, for a man. Uh, five years after she was born, the Hall process was patented. And soon after that, the commercial production of aluminum from bauxite ensued. Uh, a lot of Americans don't know that the reason that the Washington Monument is clad at the very top with aluminum is because at that time, when the Washington Monument was constructed, Aluminum was the most expensive material that would resist tarnishing. It was more expensive than gold and more expensive than platinum. No one could imagine such a thing as aluminum foil. But because of the the whole process, by 1918, when this story is published, Aluminum has plummeted in value, and it's become something that you can use, for instance, in a reinforced way to make the ships that the sailors of the future in this story um, navigate. What, What Stevens is doing by saying gold was valuable when I was a girl is suggesting that sometime after the birth of the, the speaker, something else had happened technologically to make gold also a common everyday kind of material, something that could be used for for anything. Um, And so what we have here is, in that sense, a science fiction story. Mm -hmm. It's based on the notion that technological change will lead to fundamental changes in the in the, the nature of the world in which we males and females are all embedded. And I think one of the things that lies behind the superiority of women, not physical, as you point out, and as the story points out, is that it is possible to have all sorts of engines. 
I mean, the ship that she's on that explodes and therefore casts her way onto the island where the main story action takes place, the ship that explodes was considered a fairly uh, quick freighter in those days. A freighter that we're told goes at 45 knots. I mean, even today, to have ships don't go that fast. That's yeah. an amazing speed for a, a boat that's carrying cargo. It's just astounding. Now, if Captain Mary Barnacle can make these engines work and control this massive object, it's no wonder that women are no longer subservient simply on the basis of physical strength. Uh, what I love so much about the story is that it actually it presumes the opposite that it presumes that men are inferior and women are she she is rallying against the idea that well back then it wasn't so clear that men were so inferior uh, it was women have subsequently come to accept the presence of men in positions on ships and such it's it's it, it it reverses everything in our expectations about a story of this kind right uh it, it is in that sense a feminist story uh what i like about this brand of feminism is that it is told with such humor not only is the whole story a joke in some sense um but there are jokes along the way even jokes that the the author of the story seems to be um, directing at that innermost narrator, the ancient Marinus. Mm -hmm. So when she, for example, um, says that, uh, that that she is well-educated by comparison with uh, the fellow who had previously been on, you know, maybe we should just review this, the, the plot of this. So sure. the story is that our unnamed Marinus, um, is on a ship that explodes, and she is the lone survivor. She survives by um, climbing onto an 8 by 10 foot patent hermetic ice chest. So it's a new invention. I, I would point out that the thermos bottle, the Dewar, was invented by Sir Dewar, uh, Lord Dewar. Um, in fact, five years uh, also, just a, a few years after the birth of the author of this story. Um, so the idea of going from a little thermos bottle to something that's 8 by 10 feet is amazing. That's, again, the technological future. And she climbs on top of it and floats for three days, sort of like, you know, Jesus in the, uh, in the cave after he dies. And, and she comes... <laughs> alive again when she sees the island. That that floating on the chest, the chest, I presume, was on the ship, served yes. the needs of the people on the ship. It can't help but remind me, at least, of uh, Ishmael floating off on Queequeg's coffin at, ah. at the end of Moby Dick, although I have no way of knowing if Stevens read Moby Dick. Um, however, she gets to this island and she finds that it's as if it had beckoned to her. One of the things I like, there's, there's a line that says that uh, the island heaved into sight over the horizon after three days. And I think we read that as a metaphor, you know, like saying the, uh, 
the street lights danced on the glistening sidewalks. Um, but of course, the lights don't dance. It's just our personification uh, of what's going on. But what we discover is that this island is responsive to her moods. And in fact, she talks to the island and it it reacts. And uh, later in the story, there's an island that comes along and brings with it a man. Um, well, right after our Marinus has said that she is lonely. Um, islands that float? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe maybe this island that heaved into view wasn't metaphorically heaving into view. Maybe it was really coming to her. Mm-hmm. And so this whole idea that the world responds to you. Um, so you've got to be careful how you behave. That's not a joke. That's right. That's that's the the seriousness that this story has is that it 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 treats. Uh, we know it's a joke by the ending. We can see how various. It's a floating island and yet it's volcanic. <laughs> right. <laughs> how does this work? <laughs> right. Um, on the other hand, um, people can um, emit fluids from their bodies. Um, it's an interesting hermaphroditic situation here since the island produces fruit and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even if one can't ejaculate, um, one can always spit and defecate and urinate. I mean, one can eject uh, fluids from one's body and still move around. So she, that is the Marinus, calls it a volcanic island. But I don't think there's a deep knowledge of geology under this. I think, in fact, there's a deep appreciation from mythology, not geology. Uh, for example, this island, she gets there, and, and it's it's very nice to her. In fact, it's like Eden. And as she walks mm-hmm. along, she comes to a place where she sees a pool of clear water, and she's super thirsty because she's been in salt water for three days. So she hasn't been able to drink. She sees, we're told, she sees a white signboard. But she drinks first. Then she looks at the signboard, which is put up there clearly right next to the pond, um, saying, there's something wrong with this island. Get out. Now, if I were able to just fairly comfortably walk to a pond and I saw what obviously were a signboard in a strange place, I think I'd want to read it before I decided to drink from the water. Mm -hmm. She doesn't. So even she, our Marinus, is being somewhat criticized. And in fact, living on this island, which is bounteous and gives her all kinds of goodies, by the way, only the goodies that a female would give, right? We're told she gets milk, coconuts, eggs, yeah, exactly, turtle eggs, berries. It's all female stuff that she gets. Um, Even she begins to feel grumpy and angry that she's isolated. And when she gets grumpy, the weather changes and all sorts of terrible things happen. So she begins to learn that the island is not just responsive, it's it's interacting with her. She screws up, but she learns from it. The man who left the, uh, the signboard signed it Nelson Smith. Nelson is uh, an interesting name. It turns out that as a first name, 
it only enters the language in um, honor of Admiral Nelson, for mm-hmm. whom it's a surname. It just means the son of Neil. Um, Nelson's an interesting guy for a seafaring story because he's the man who conquered Napoleon at the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805. That's the first time Napoleon is captured. But in winning that battle, Nelson himself is killed. And so here comes this guy, Nelson Smith. Smith is, you know, a doer, a worker with metals and things. Um, Here comes this man, um, and he can't work with the island, so he runs away. But later, when the Marinus is lonely, but is just tolerant of the loneliness, the island somehow brings her a floating island, which the Marinus opines might in fact be her daughter that mm-hmm. split off right the daughter brings back the nelson who must have swum away um but finally found a place and and so they get together um the, the this puts an adam and an eve together on what could be a paradise mm-hmm. they've now learned the rules and they get cast out by that spewing volcano that you mentioned after Nelson stubs his toe and curses. So it's very interesting. In, mm-hmm. in the original story of, the, of Paradise, the woman is tempted, eats what she should not eat, and because of her temptation, the man and woman are cast out. This time, it is the man who is disobedient, and in fact, because of the of him, the man and woman are cast out. And lest you think that the Eve reference, the Paradise reference, is um, just me overreading as usual. No, I don't think so. Not in this case. Okay, uh, because as soon as he starts cursing, I mean, w- when he tells her um, what happened, when he when when Nelson tells uh, the sailoress what happened the first time. In fact, when he cursed, um, because he had cut himself on a tin, um, when he curses, the island reacts by having snakes come out of every crack in the island. Uh, Of every color. Exactly, of every color. So I think think this is a story that genuinely takes a feminist viewpoint, as we would call it these days. But it takes a feminist viewpoint with a touch of humor with a recognition that women themselves are not necessarily perfect. But for goodness sakes, men, will you learn to think about what's really important? Will you learn to show some sensitivity? And then at the end of the story, um, we find that the sailoress has abandoned Nelson as quickly as she could once they are rescued because uh, she clearly resents the fact that she had considered settling down with this fellow who showed his true stripes when he he got angry at the island, which she had named Anita. Um, And so out comes this story. If I may, about the names, Anita is a diminutive of Anne. Anne is the mother of the Virgin Mary, the grandmother of Jesus. It is through Anne that It is possible for humanity to be redeemed and to find paradise again. And uh, in fact, 
Nelson, in the language of the sailoress, starts to be called Nellie. Even before she meets him, she thinks of him as Nellie, which is definitely a female name, and it's a diminutive for Helen, who is the woman who causes the Trojan War. Um, Male jealousy around Helen, of course. And lest, again, one would think, well, where did that come from? Odysseus is actually mentioned on the last page of the story mm-hmm. when the narrator says, I have a great knowledge of all kinds of seagoing stories, which is why he went in to begin with, to see if he could get another story. Um, I think that this is, in fact, a very subtle, very um, learned and very much fun extended joke of a feminist kind trying to get us to learn that. No, it's only in fantasy that the world is responsive to you. Well, sure, in terms of the weather, but in terms of the social world that we all inhabit, yeah, our mood changes the world around us, and we need to be sensitive to people, or we're not going to be able to get along. Yeah, I I think that that the island need not only represent, you know, the Garden of Eden, but also just... Uh, a, a nation or a society and so that when some members of the society are upset um, this causes uh, trauma within the society and uh, is, given that it's from 1918 and that we're headed towards this the suffrage uh, result that women want in the United States and elsewhere that women can vote and have a say in society uh, the strife that is being caused by uh, women becoming uppity is itself upsetting to women, but also to the society as a whole. So when the situation here is reversed, what 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 strikes me about the different reactions that our narrator, our our, our sea woman has, and Nelson has, is that she moderates her her reaction when she realizes that she affects the island she comes to control herself and it's difficult for her and it doesn't mean that there's no storms but once that monkey is killed and i thought it was interesting that it was a monkey um (laughs) because there seems to be some uh disregard for um the 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 science (laughs) of of uh tectonics and such um but you I, do, I, but you do notice that that the sailoress refers to the monkey as he. Yes, and that the monkeys are are the ones, the only ones on the island that don't really get happy when she shows up and does things. Right. It's it's, it's a very subtle little hint, I think. Um, but because because of the overall jokey tone of the ending that makes it very clear that <laughs> she, it, it, the the unnamed male narrator who's interviewing the sea, sea woman uh, compares her story to that of Odysseus, Baron Munchausen, right? Right. Um, and of course, uh, the rhyme of the ancient mariner is directly references referenced as well, and that is also uh, a tall tale of a, of a certain kind. Um, but he says that this is the greatest story of them all, <laughs> which I think is quite funny because his alternative is to uh, think that he got a bad deal with his giant bill for 
TN scones. And I think tying it into the suffrage movement isn't enough because uh, I just I, – I love the idea that you go down to the harbor and you look for the roughest, toughest, seagoing persons. And where do you find them? In a tea house. <laughs> yes. <laughs> not a bar, not a tavern. It's a tea house where, you know, the roughest, toughest, seagoing women on the planet and men, presumably, go to drink their troubles away. <laughs> well, they may be men, <clears throat> but we are told that he's only tolerated there, our outermost narrator. Uh, I'd like to take a look at the, the beginning because it shows how good a writer this is. Mm -hmm. It was upon the waterfront that I first met her in one of the shabby little tea houses frequented by able sailoresses of the poorer type. The uptown glittering resorts of the Lady Aviators Union were not for such as she. Mm -hmm. Now, I look at this and I think, my gosh, she is rough and poor, so she's down here, downtown. Mm -hmm. Uptown is the Ladies' Aviators Union. The Ladies' Aviators Union is capitalized. Those who stick together, the union, manages to have economic force. Those who are isolated do not. The aviators are, aviatresses, um, are high. They're in the air. The sailors mm -hmm. are low. So there is here a, a story about gender, about social construction, about social relations, about uh, technological advancement, and it's even carried out in the, the physical metaphors of uptown, downtown, flying versus sailing, and so on. So that's all set up in the very first paragraph. Um, I, I think that Stevens knows what she's doing. Absolutely. I, I wonder, I, I tried to find out a little about her life, um, frankly, because you prompted me to, uh, and I got curious. So Gertrude Barrows Bennett, um, turns out that she left school after the eighth grade, um, she want, she began working as a stenographer. She needed to make money. Um, she eventually uh, marries a man, Stuart Bennett, who is an explorer, and he dies on an expedition a year later. And that's, that's her only long-going romantic relationship that I ever have found out about. But that union produced a daughter, so she cares for the daughter. She has to work in order to provide for her daughter. Um, when her father dies, uh, she winds up taking care of her invalid mother. When her mother dies, it turns out that she's estranged from her daughter. So here we have somebody who has had to bear the responsibility for others her whole <laughs> life with comparatively little education. But how does she survive? What she does is she tells stories. She acts as a stenographer to copy down other people's words. Mm -hmm. But she quickly learns that she can sell her own stories. In 1918, when this thing was published, when this book was published, she's already a longtime widow. She has come through the war. 
and seen the absolute destruction of what some people call the first industrial war. Mm -hmm. Others say the American Civil War is that. But she's seen this. She's seen poison gas. She's seen enormous artillery shells. She's seen the destruction and the futility of trench warfare. She knows about all of this. And she writes something that sounds like the Titanic, right? That here is a a boat, the one that Captain Mary Barnacle uh, commanded, that could not be sunk. And of course, it explodes, maybe because Captain Mary Barnacle had a bad thought. But nowadays, whenever that is in the current time that the sailorist is telling the story, of course, ships do not sink and they are no longer subject to the weather. I think given the time that this was published and the kind of life that that uh, that Barrows had, Barrows Bennett had, she's giving the lie to that. She wants people in 1918 to realize that this is a false optimism of a future that depends upon technology. And so the fact that it's a false future makes it reasonable that the sailoress is in fact poor. She's never been able to fully give up the the realities of her youth. Gold hairpins still matter to her. And she is, I think, sad that she never was able to find romance, not because she wasn't willing to consider it, but men kept disappointing her. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I'm not always too keen on biographical criticism. Um, I don't think one writes a story because one has a certain life. But it sure does seem to me that the facts of Frances Stevens' life, in which she's even hid her identity behind a pseudonym, a male pseudonym, um, (laughs) fit very, very well with the the sad wisdom that this joke cloaks. Mm -hmm. I think that Given that it's 1918, it came out before the war's end, so it was written before the war's end. Um, United States is in the war at this time. There's something interesting also going on in that world. I, I spend my a lot of the week preparing for this, thinking about how much we do learn in just those few lines that aren't really about what the story is about, about the world. One of the things that our protagonist says is that the sea lanes back in those days were only ever patrolled by the government ships. Notice that it's not the United States government. It's just the government. So Mm. it makes me think we have a world government. And they're not on the lookout for pirates. They're on the lookout for derelicts. Right. The only thing that can go wrong is that a ship engines break or you know a, a storm knocks them off kilter there's no war in this world and, I, and I, I, I'm sorry. is that because is that because it's a female dominated society or is it from the technological change it seems to me that this story is is very interestingly peaceful not only because drinking doesn't seem to exist in the in the place where you would think the hardest sailors would be drinking the hardest gin 
they're drinking tea. <laughs> yes. And in a world where there's dangerous islands, you would think that there would be battle cruisers cruising about trying to claim them. But there's not. There's little government ships looking for derelicts to keep the sea lanes clear. The idea of uh, a completely Pacific world, I'm not making a pun on the, on the ocean, uh, but peaceful, um, is already um, something that Charlotte Perkins Gilman makes uh, vivid in her 1915 novel, Herland. Mm-hmm. So the idea that you're suggesting is behind the politics of this story is indeed in the air. It is in the air, and there's no reason why uh, Francis Stevens shouldn't pick it up. I think I what's crucial is what we pick up from it. When you have a nested narration, as you do in Moore's Utopia, for example, or any of H.G. Wells' works, early works that don't look like they're going to be a utopia, they look like they will be and then they won't, like the time machine. Ultimately, the outermost narrator's education is what's at stake. And what we need to learn in this story is what is it that the outermost narrator learns? And what it turns out that he learns, as is so often the case, is not enough. He doesn't know whether or not um, the story is true, but because the bill was so high, he says, (laughs) it was of such incredible proportions that in comparison to that, I found it easy to believe her story. Well, you know, if you're going to let reality blind you to truth, you're always going to make mistakes, as men will continue to do, but as we shouldn't, which is what the author trusts we can come away with. I think there is a little more to say here, um, if you don't mind. I don't. I I was thinking about why is the sin that Nelson commits so bad? And to me, it, it's always seemed ridiculous that people get upset when people swear. Or is this, as our heroine says, cuss? And I I was thinking about why could that be? And one of the reasons I think it might be beyond just it's unladylike, which is not exactly right, I think, is that because it actually goes to the word swear rather than cuss. Um, And when we swear, we say things like, God damn it to hell. Or, I swear I'm going to kill you. It used to be that the only time people would swear would be when they're in court. They've got their hand on the stack of Bibles, and they say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Uh, But Napoleon outlawed uh, his troops dueling because they were always swearing that they were going to get into duels. And he said, this is very bad for my troops. They kill each other off. 
in time coming for war, I need those troops. They should be fighting the enemy. And I, it seems to me that this sort of logic of of don't swear, children, is actually not about using harsh language, using cuss words, but rather about riling up emotion that can cause promises of violence. And if you think about it in that context, it makes more sense. Not swearing is a moderating idea, preventing people from getting into conflict, preventing people from promising in the heat of the moment that they are going to have a duel with someone at a certain time. Some minor infraction, some impoliteness gets people too hot. And in that logic, when he stubs his toe, he's only cursing randomly, perhaps the stone or maybe the island or God or whoever. And yet it it is unladylike. Women are all, in my experience, always more likely to say, don't swear. I think that... Uh your analysis of the the concept of swear um, reminds us that one swears an oath, as you said, in court. Um, when you take a vow, you're swearing. Mm-hmm. You can swear fealty as well as violence. Um, what what all of this has in common with what you've just said is the notion that you should not take God's name in vain. That is, you should not utter it. Um, Emptily. It shouldn't be an empty statement. I can imagine Nelson swearing that this island be damned. Look what it's doing. Um, Look what's happened. The rock has stuck out in front of my foot and I've stubbed my toe. Damned island, Mm -hmm. which is taking God's name in vain if Anita is the the god. Um, Cuss which is the word used in the story, is obviously an alteration of curse. Mm -hmm. And curse is a kind of swearing. It it is, in its first usage in Old English, it is a prayer that evil will befall someone. Mm -hmm. And so when he's cussing, he is, in fact, in a linguistic way, asking for God to do something violent and hurtful to someone. But he doesn't really mean it. He's doing this in vain, and mm-hmm. and the God is offended. Um, you don't have to be a lady to figure this out, but I, I must say, in my experience, uh, which may just be an example of the sexism of the world that you and I were raised in, but I think it's it was also true at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th when the story was published. Indeed, uh, rough talk is what you would expect from men. And in fact, and sailors, totally, exactly, exactly. He curses like a sailor. Right. What in, in, in this world, uh, sailor women don't curse, apparently. Right. They, they pray. They get upset. They throw things, as Nelson points out. How ladylike is it to throw things? Well, uh, what is the name of Captain Mary's barnacle ship? The Shouter. <laughs> Perfect. There are many jokes in this in this wonderful there story. Are. It really is a good story. I am uh, 
so glad that you uh, you brought it forward again. Um, this is uh, an author whose work deserves to be read. I agree.